during fall break, my family uh, spent the week at Disney World in Orlando. And on our last day there, we went to the Animal Kingdom, which is uh, basically a zoo on steroids. It's uh, it's uh, kind of a, a zoo theme park combo steeped in everything Disney. It really is an amazing place. And at the center entrance of the Animal Kingdom, uh, whereas the Magic Kingdom, for instance, has Cinderella's Castle or Sleeping Beauty's Castle in, D- in Disneyland, the Animal Kingdom has the Tree of Life. Very interestingly named, isn't it? Um, the Tree of Life is a 145-foot-tall, wide-trunked tree that, that just towers over the landscape of the animal kingdom with meadows and pools and smaller trees all around it. It, it, It's man-made, but it looks super real, at least from afar. It has a complex kind of gnarled root system and branches that outstretch from it in every direction. When, When you're far away from the tree... That's, that's all that you see. You see this gigantic, apparently old, beautiful tree. But when you get closer, you notice that etched into the trunk of the tree of life and in all of its branches and roots are carvings of various animals, 300 of them to be exact. And so as we looked at the tree of life more up close, our family had fun just pointing out the different animals that we saw. Oh, look, there's an elephant. Ah, an eagle. I see that. Ah, there's an anteater. There's a rhino. During the mid part of the day, we were eating lunch near the Tree of Life, and and all of a sudden, uh, two Disney cast members uh, came out and started a bird show right in front of the Tree of Life with these two giant macaws. And uh, so, of course, I and the kids walked up. I think Lindsay was doing something else at the time. We walked up to watch part of the show. And um, the, the, the cast members were talking about the importance of conservation, that there's only 400 blue-throated macaws in existence in the wild today. And it wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if someday the, the blue-throated macaw once again filled the skies? And at that very moment, friends, the music ramped up. And wouldn't you know it, flying majestically over the tree of life were 15 to 20 wide-winged, blue-throated macaws that landed right in front of us. I mean, that was the Disney magic, right? It was unbelievable. Now, why do I share all that? Because at the tree of life, there were layers of wonder to unfold. You couldn't see all of its beauty at first glance or even by second glance. In order to see the true glory of the tree of life, you had to stare at it. At every turn, there was more to see. There was more to take in. There was more to stimulate our delight. Friends, such is the nature of seeing and understanding Jesus Christ in the Gospels. The Gospel writers like Matthew present the person and work of Jesus so that we will stare intently at the glory of who He is and what He came to do. And like a masterpiece work of art, like the tree of life, looking at the beauty of Jesus, it never gets old. It never grows stale. We can never fully take it in. There are always more things to grasp about Him, more beauty of Him to behold, more aspects of His character and His works to enjoy. Friends, even in a text like ours this morning from Matthew 14, which is no doubt very familiar for those who have been Christians for any amount of time, friends, we ought not to look at Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000 with a casual glance from afar. 
No, this morning we need to draw closer. We need to go deeper to unfold layer after layer of the glories of God and His eternal Son, our King, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's only by staring at the glory of Christ that, friends, we come to identify Him correctly. And it's only by identifying Christ correctly that then we we respond to Him rightly with hearts full of worship and trust. So please turn your Bibles this morning to Matthew 14. Matthew 14, it's on page 820 of the Bibles made available to you under the seats. Friends, when we left off three weeks ago, we saw an example of someone who identified Jesus wrongly. When Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee, heard about the mighty works of Jesus, his guilt-ridden conscience, if you remember, made him fearful that, that John the Baptist had risen from the dead. He had resurrected and come back to get him. Of course, the first few verses of Matthew 14 are a flashback telling us of the incident in which Herod had both imprisoned John and then executed him some years or months later. Verse 13 picks up right where we left off a few weeks ago. Let's start reading Matthew 14, 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, I think the main idea of Matthew 14, 13 to 21 that I pray will be the main idea of our sermon this morning is this. Jesus feeds his people abundantly, so come to him and feast. Jesus feeds his people abundantly, so come to him and feast. Friends, all three of the miracles presented in this portion of Matthew 14 highlight Jesus' lordship over creation. He bends the natural order to obey His will. So in verses 13 to 21 that we just read, He creates bread to feed the multitude. In verses 22 to 33, He walks on the sea to rescue His disciples. And in verses 34 to 36, He heals the sick just merely by their touching the fringe of His garment. Friends, but in all these miracles, in all of them, there is more to Jesus than immediately meets the eye. He is not only showcasing his power, but in these works, friends, we come to understand that he is unveiling more of the fullness of his glory and more of the greatness of his salvation that he came to bring to his people. You know, friends, typically my sermon outline matches segments or portions of the text. This morning, we're going to do it a little bit differently. I'm going to summarize Jesus' miracle first, and then we're going to go back and discuss three things that I think we can take from this passage, from this miracle of Jesus. 
in the feeding of the 5,000. And I pray today that Jesus' glory in this miracle might compel us to trust him fully as our great provider, as the host of the only banquet that will satisfy our souls. Let's read again, starting in verse 13. Verse 13 says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. When Jesus heard what? Well, I think the most natural reading is that when Jesus heard that that Herod had executed his cousin, John the Baptist, he decided to leave the area. But but remember, verses 3 to 12 of Matthew 14 are a flashback. So it could be that verse 13 is more connected to verse 2 and and, and Herod's knowledge of Jesus' ministry. Regardless, Jesus seemed to sense that, that Herod's attention was on him. And so he withdrew from the region because of the politically tricky and dangerous situation. Not because Jesus was afraid, but because he was wise. The divinely appointed hour of the climax of his messianic mission had not yet arrived. Friends, a day was coming in which Jesus would willingly face Herod. And then he would willingly give his life as a sin-bearing sacrifice for his people. That day would come, but it was not there yet. And so Jesus, knowing that, withdraws to a place beyond the reach of Herod. And apparently what he hoped would be beyond the reach of the crowds, since the text says he traveled there to be by himself. But that was not to be. Jesus retreated from Herod, but he could not escape the crowds. Look at verse 13 again. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Evidently, some people saw Jesus and his disciples get into the boat and begin to cross the lake. And in the time that it took Jesus and his disciples to cross the Sea of Galilee, the crowds eager to see him perform a mighty deed, perhaps to be healed of sicknesses and ailments themselves, quickly skirted around the lake to meet him on the other side. Look at what verse 14 says bubbled to the surface in Jesus' heart when he realized that his retreat had been thwarted by the clamoring crowd. Not annoyance. Not frustration, not anger, compassion. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Friends, the default mode of Jesus' operating system is mercy. When Jesus saw the waiting crowd, friends, he didn't see inconvenience, he saw need, he didn't see an interruption. He saw their brokenness. His heart was was magnetized to move toward them to help, not to to recoil away from them because they had interrupted his his plans for for that day, for that retreat. Friends, we've seen this time and time again in Matthew. Whether it's Jesus' healing the leper or healing of the paralytic or when he saw the crowds that he thought knew were, were harassed and helpless, again and again and again, Jesus' compassion comes in waves. That day, Jesus had every reason to push the crowds away, but instead he welcomed them in. Even though he was likely grieving the death of his cousin, Jesus was not too preoccupied with himself to help the needy. He, he not only healed the sick, he gave food to the hungry. Friends, surely we're meant to see the feeding of the 5,000 as a great act of Jesus' compassion. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan pastor, once wrote, Christ is love 
covered over in flesh. This is the essence of who he is. One quick theological point. Since Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God, that means that the compassion Jesus exercised on that day was divine compassion. It was perfect and unperturbed by sin or selfishness. And because, friends, Jesus is God, that means his divine compassion is the same today as it was yesterday and the day before and the same as it will be into eternity. Jesus' heart pulses with compassion, compassion just as much now in his exalted session at the right hand of the Father as it did that day on the hillside. That is amazing news for you and me. Friends, for your very sinfulness my very sinfulness, our very struggle is what draws the gaze of King Jesus. It is what qualifies you for his help. His tender mercies are readily available to you today if you come to him by faith. He's eager to help your need just as much this morning as the day that he stepped off the boat. It may seem that's not the case because Jesus is far off. He seems distant. He's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Our friends, if you're united to Christ Jesus by faith, he is nearer to you now than he was to the crowds on the hillside. Jesus evidently spent much of the day healing the sick and the hurting because verse 15 indicates that when evening came, he was still going strong, right? Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away and go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Given the remote location and the kind of the spontaneous following of the crowds that day, there was no food to feed a crowd of that size. I, I think the disciples' suggestion to send the crowds away was not calloused. It, it was practical. It was thoughtful even, right? They wanted to make sure that the, that the crowds weren't stranded without sustenance. And so they called on Jesus, hey, Wind things down, please, right? Dispense the masses to the villages to buy food. Look at Jesus' response in verse 16. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Now, friends, if, if this account were not true, and Matthew simply created some fanciful story to make Jesus and the disciples look good, he would not have included this detail, right? Because this seems just totally outlandish. It's, it's a totally crazy thing to say. Uh, excuse me, Jesus, <laughs> come again. Like you were with us on the boat. You know that we didn't bring any food with us. You see the thousands of people milling around on this hillside. Are you crazy? It's honestly a very funny detail of the story, right? Jesus says, send the crowds away. Jesus turns it right back around to the disciples and say, you give them something to eat. Friends, I think Jesus talks this way to his disciples, not because he's out of touch, but because he wants to involve them in his miracle. He wants them to feel responsibility for the crowd situation just as much as he did. And once Jesus performs the miracle, friends, he'll, he'll utilize the disciples and the distribution process as well. This is, this is a pivotal discipleship moment in their lives. Friends, what's striking about, the disciple, about Jesus' instruction for the disciples to feed the crowd is that they had no ability to carry, out, carry it out, out on their own. 
They had no resources to make it happen. And that is the entire point. Jesus puts the responsibility on the disciples, but his intent, friends, is that the full weight of his instruction will drive them back to him and to his provision. He'll be the one who provides the resources and ultimately who meets the need and so gets the glory, not them. Jesus provides for what he commands. Friends, so much of God's word functions like this, doesn't it? Even for us as believers, right? Just because God commands something of us doesn't mean that we have the natural ability on our own to carry it out. Commands to love each other sacrificially in the church. Commands to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. The commands to, oh, to bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. These are hard and high commands. Commands to deny yourself daily. Take up your cross. Follow him. Say no to temptation. Pursue holiness, right? Share the gospel faithfully. Make disciples of me among all the nations, even ones that are hostile to you. Who is sufficient for these things? Not us. But beloved, the point of God's commands is not to prove your sufficiency, but that through your faith-filled obedience, you might prove His sufficiency. So that through the enabling power of the Spirit and the limitless resources of Christ, friends, He might enable your obedience and strengthen you to accomplish His will. I think that's one major lesson that Jesus taught the disciples that day. The day was coming, wasn't it? When Jesus would be off the scene. The disciples would be alone, as it were. But His great commission would ring in their ears. They were charged to take the gospel to the nations, to make disciples, and to establish churches, right? How would they do it? Only with the strength and resources and provision that He provides. Only because He promised to be with them until the end of the age and to undergird their ministry in the power of the Spirit. And so it is for us. Look at the disciples' reply in verse 17. We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Friends, by the way, this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only one of Jesus' miracles recorded in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The only one, the only miracle recorded by each of the Gospel writers aside from the resurrection of Christ. Apparently, they think it's hugely significant to understanding who Jesus is and what he came to do. And the apostle John in John chapter 6 lets us know that the disciples got the five loaves and the two fish from who? From a boy, right? Who had brought those as his dinner. Five small bun-sized loaves and two fishes, no bigger than a sardine most likely. Again, friends, if you're a skeptic about the truthfulness of the Scripture, why would the Gospel writers like Matthew have decided to include these details if they weren't true? If it didn't happen just like this, couldn't the thousands that were there that day have discredited it? Or if the whole thing was made up, surely those alive back then could have easily overturned the writers' accounts. But instead, friends, these, these specific details, five loaves, two fishes, they're attested by multiple witnesses which is a principle for documenting history, right? In, including Matthew himself, who was an eyewitness to this event. Back to the story. 
Can you imagine the, the discouragement or maybe even the embarrassment of the disciples, <laughs> right? Jesus sends, the, sends them out to, to feed the crowd. They bring a boy's, you know, ancient Middle Eastern Lunchable back, right? Five, five loaves, two fishes. What was Jesus going to do? Was he going to divide the bread into crumbs? Was he going to eat it for his dinner since he's out there busy doing all the work? Look at verse 19. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Matthew includes no details about the actual mechanics of the miracle. So we're kind of left to wonder how it worked. I don't know if the food multiplied in the disciples' hands or if it multiplied in Jesus' hands as, as he broke it and gave it to them. You know, in my imagination of, the, of this moment, I'd like to think it's the latter for kind of a theological point alone that, that every time the disciples emptied their hands and distributing the food, there was yet more in Jesus' hands to give them, right? They did not drain his resources when ministering on his behalf. From Christ's hands came enough food to, to feed this crowd of thousands and then some. The text says that the crowd was fully satisfied. So abundant was Jesus' provision that there were 12 baskets of leftovers left over, one for each disciple. As the foundation of Christ's church moving forward, they would never lack his resources in their preaching of the gospel, in their work to carry out his commission to make disciples. Our friends, surely this miracle was a poignant reminder of that reality. But what does God want us to learn from this miracle for us today? So many years later, what are we meant to see about Jesus? Let me suggest three things. Number one, Jesus' glorious identity. Number two, Jesus' powerful provision. And number three, Jesus' lavish banquet. His glorious identity, his powerful provision, his lavish banquet. First, his glorious identity. Friends, one of the things that we've learned about Matthew and his portrayal of Jesus Christ and his gospel is that he repeatedly presents Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises and patterns that forecast God's coming salvation. They all point to him and are fulfilled in him. But one of the unique ways that Matthew highlights Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament is that he shows Jesus' life and ministry reenacting the history of God's people in a way that shows that Jesus has come to bring God's kingdom reign. Jesus functions in this way as both the true people of God, the true Israel. He succeeds where Israel failed and as the true God of his people, right? The Son of God the Son of Man, come to redeem and to rescue. He's fully God. He's fully man. So for instance, let me just give you an example of this earlier in Matthew. Okay, Right at the beginning of Matthew, in chapters 1 and 2, Matthew presents Jesus as the seed of Abraham right, and the seed of David, a little boy who, like Moses, is hunted by a wicked king. And Jesus' family then flees to Egypt, right? And then back to Israel once Herod the Great dies. 
And Matthew says that fulfills Hosea's prophecy framed in Exodus language out of Egypt. I called my son. Which of course is God's Old Testament language for Israel. In chapter 3 of Matthew, in Jesus' baptism in the Jordan, he goes through the waters of the Jordan like someone might if they were living through a new exodus of God's people. In chapter 4, like Israel before him, Jesus finds himself wandering in the wilderness. And like Adam before him, facing the serpent's temptations. Victorious over the serpent, Jesus' life once again mirrors Israel just as their wilderness wanderings led to Mount Sinai to receive God's law, so too Jesus' wilderness wandering leads to a mount where he delivers his law, the Sermon on the Mount, in chapters 5 to 7. It's amazing. Take that in for a moment. Jesus embodies the history of his people to show that he is the great promise keeper, right? As Sally Lloyd-Jones says in her, her children's Bible, every story whispers his name. Beloved, I think the same type of thing is happening here in Matthew 14. We are meant to hear biblical echoes of redemptive history as we read. Why might Matthew have twice included the detail that Jesus performed this miracle in a desolate place? Quite literally in the desert or the wilderness. Has there been another time in Israel's history where God provided abundant bread for his people while they sojourned in the desert? Well, yes, of course, we read about it earlier. Just after delivering his people from Egypt, God showered down manna from heaven despite their disobedience and, and not trusting him. Friends, it was there in the wilderness that God created the nation of Israel and demonstrated his mighty presence with them, proving over and over and over again that he was their great provider. He would give them all that they need as he led them to the promised land. Despite the barrenness around them, he was unceasingly good in providing all that they needed. Much later in Israel's history, shortly after the prophet Elijah's death, the Lord performed a miracle through his prophet Elisha, in which he multiplied 20 loaves to feed 100 men. You can find that in 2 Kings 4. And listen to what Elisha tells his servant in 2 Kings 4.43. Elisha says this, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Friends, does that verbiage sound familiar to you? Give it to the men. Give it to the crowds. Give it to me and they had some left. Of course it does. We hear this very verbiage echoed in Matthew 14. And surely then it's not a coincidence that Jesus performs this miracle right after John the Baptist's death, who we know is the prophesied new Elijah who would prepare the way for the Messiah's coming. What's the point? Why does Matthew layer biblical image upon biblical image here? I think he means for us to see that Jesus Christ is the new and greater Moses, come to lead God's people from the desert to the promised land. He's the great prophet of the Lord that Moses in Deuteronomy 18 said would come one day and that all should listen to. He's the new and greater Elisha who multiplies bread for his people. Why does that matter? Is that just a cool biblical theological point? No, friend. As redemptive history progressed 
And Israel then was taken into exile outside the land, in the wilderness, if you will. Prophets like Isaiah picture the, that their return from exile, they pick, he pictured it as a coming day of deliverance and salvation. So great will that day be that Israel's exodus, his return from, from, from the land of exile would be like an exodus from Egypt, but far greater. Isaiah says that God will make a highway for his redeemed people back to the land, just as he did in Egypt. It will be a new exodus and even frames it in terms of a new creation. Listen to the words of Isaiah 51.3. Isaiah 51.3, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places, and He makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. So friends, when we see Jesus doing the acts of new creation in the desert, we are meant to see this great day of God's deliverance arriving. That great day of salvation did not come through Israel's return to Palestine from Babylon. Friends, these promises are ultimately fulfilled through an Exodus deliverance far greater than one from any political power like Egypt or Babylon or Rome. It was a deliverance from the tyrants that have plagued humanity since the garden. Jesus came to deliver us from our bondage to sin and death. He came to lead us from our exile outside the garden back into the arms of God to provide his people eternal redemption and forgiveness of sins. So friends, it's not merely here in this Matthew passage that, that Jesus arrives as the promised prophet, the one greater than Moses and Elisha who works on behalf of God. He is so far much more. Think about this. Moses received bread from heaven. Jesus gives it from his very hand. Moses leads his people so that Yahweh could provide for them. Jesus does the very providing. Jesus performed works like Elisha did, but with a quarter of the resources, yet providing a hundred times more bread. By feeding the thousands that day, Jesus is tipping us off to the fact that not only is he greater than all the prophets who preceded him, he is the very fulfillment of every promise and every pattern that all the prophets predicted would come true. It's his reign. It's his word. It's his glory that is the telos, the end goal of all God's former revelation. Friends, Jesus is not merely the agent of God's promised salvation. He came as the very God of the promised salvation. He is the eternal son of God come to lead his people home. Friends, don't miss the identity of Jesus Christ. He is not your friendly neighborhood rabbi. He is the eternal God made flesh. He is the prophet king come to destroy his people's enemies and meet his people's eternal need. And as such, he is worthy of your highest worship. As we think about this miracle, our jaws collectively ought to just hit the floor as we behold the glory of Christ Jesus in this mighty act. And we ought to praise him that he is this type of king and this type of God for us. Number two, Jesus' powerful provision. You know, the very heart of this miracle is that Jesus took scarcity and he turned it into abundance. He took hunger, and he turned it into satisfaction. He provides all that his people need and then some. 
Friends, think of the five loaves and two fish that fed a crowd of what? 10 to 15,000 when you factor in women and children. Out of his hands, those loaves, those fish were a paltry meal. In his hands, they were an abundant feast. Here's a clear lesson from this miracle, beloved. The degree of Jesus' ability to provide is not determined by the amount of human resources. The ability, the degree, excuse me, of Jesus' ability to provide is not determined by the amount of human resources. Jesus, Jesus turned a boy's snack into a crowd's banquet. He wasn't constrained by what was offered to him. He acted to provide out of his limitless supply. Friends, this miracle of Jesus is, is like a living illustration of two of the parables that we looked at in chapter 13. The parables of the leaven and the mustard seed where something tiny, remember, grows to turn out to be something huge. What appears small and insignificant in the kingdom of God turns out to be the very opposite in the equation of eternity. Jesus' miracle here provides living color to those parables. Friends, perhaps you're here this morning and, and you're facing something difficult, a, a situation, a crisis in your life in which you feel like your resources are bare. They are scarce. Maybe, maybe it's your personal finances. Maybe it's the amount of wisdom you feel like you have to make a tough decision. Maybe it's an obstacle in, in your future regarding work or family. You just feel like it's too big for you to handle. Maybe it's a sin, a besetting sin that you feel like, man, this is just outside of my strength to overcome. Beloved, let what you see here of your Savior encourage you. The degree of your resources do not correspond to Jesus' ability to provide. Our King is in the need-meeting business. Did you know that you, you can never have a need that exhausts Jesus' resources and his ability? Ever. So when you pray, pray with confidence. You come to the God who promises to, to supply all your need according to the what? According to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Friends, this truth ought to settle our hearts. It ought to lengthen our stride as we walk by faith. It's so easy to judge God's capability by what we see. To think that his solution must correspond to our vantage. Friends, don't make that mistake. To judge Christ's ability by your field of vision is worldliness. That's what those without Christ do. Friends, if you judge Christ's ability by your sight, you'll no doubt be given over to sinful worry and anxiety to idolatries like trying to control the situation, to grasp it back, to take it matters into your own hands. Friends, if there's anything this miracle teaches us, it's that Christ Jesus takes the scarce and he makes it abundant. He takes the resourceless and fills them up. He satisfies those who have nothing to offer him. Friends, we need to trust him to be the generous provider that he is. Think of this. All the disciples were able to turn up that day were five loaves and two fish, and yet Jesus still commands them to bring them to him. It wasn't much. It wasn't much at all. 
but consecrated in the hands of the, of the master, consecrated to his use, they became everything necessary for him to accomplish his purpose. By all appearances, what was given to Jesus that day was piddly and inconsequential, but in his hands, all of that was reversed in a moment. Friends, you may feel like you have nothing to offer Christ this morning. So often I think we mistakenly think that it's the super gifted, right? The super put together that Jesus uses. No, friend, Jesus uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He uses the single moms and the high schoolers and the elderly and the busy businessman. He uses human weakness to showcase divine power. Friends, don't worry about how much you feel like you have. You simply consecrate what you have to Christ's use, and then you sit back and you watch Him demonstrate His ability and power and generosity, not only to meet your need, but to meet others' needs through you. I love how Spurgeon applied this text. The Prince of Preachers, so many years ago, when he was preaching John 6, he said this, I do not say that every man of common ability can rise to high ability by being associated with Christ through faith. But I do say this, that his ordinary ability in association with Christ will become sufficient for the occasion to which God in providence has called him. I know that you have been praying and saying, I have not this, I cannot do that. Stay not to number your deficiencies. Bring what you have and let all that you are, body, soul, and spirit, be associated with Christ. Yes and amen. Beloved, this is true for every one of us as individuals and it is true for us as a church. If Jesus can use five loaves and two fish to feed thousands, surely he can use a small congregation of 125 saints to spread his gospel around the Southwest Valley and around the world. For surely he can take the limited resources at our disposal and multiply them for the good of his gospel and the fame of his name and the advance of his kingdom around the world. Surely, friends, even the crossroads that we're at with this very facility and the rent cost and all the rest is no true obstacle when stacked next to the limitless provision of King Jesus. The question is not, do we have need? The question is, do we believe that our King is fully capable and eager to supply the meeting of that need? If so, it ought to infuse us with confidence and embolden our prayers, and heighten our joy in Him. So we not only see Jesus' glorious identity, His powerful provision, finally, His lavish banquet. I don't know if you've noticed this, but what we have in this account is really a contrast between two banquets, right? Verses 1 to 12 tell us about Herod's birthday bash that ended up in John's bloody death. It was a banquet full of immorality and wickedness and death. It featured a king who seemingly had all the world has to offer, who leveraged that power and wealth to serve himself. Contrast that with a banquet that Jesus provides for the crowd that day, full of righteousness and goodness and life. It featured a king who seemingly had nothing this world has to offer. Yet 
one who leveraged his infinite power to serve the needs of others. <laughs> Beloved, Jesus is the king of compassion and mercy and grace. He's, he's nothing like Herod or any of the, of the rulers of this age who demand our allegiance and attention. In fact, do you remember Matthew 4? Matthew 4, Jesus is in the desert. He's tempted by Satan. Satan tempts Jesus, turn this stone into bread. Quench your hunger, Jesus. I know you're hungry. But Jesus would not swerve from his father's will and selfishly provide for himself. Instead, he would wait to create bread until he could dispense his limitless creative power to meet the needs of others, to satisfy the bellies of the crowd and the souls of all who would come to him by faith. Beloved, here's one more thing about Jesus' identity. Jesus came not only to satisfy his people with bread from heaven, but to satisfy us as the bread of heaven. Listen to how Jesus responds to the crowd that day after this miracle, according to, to John 6. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? As if they didn't just see one. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Friends, ultimately, we can trust Jesus as our great provider, not merely because we see his generosity and power on the hillside by the lake, but because what he would later do on the hillside outside Jerusalem, where he, the bread of life, would be broken for us. He gave himself for us so that he might bring salvation to us. Friends, in his death, Jesus took upon himself our sins as though he were the sinner, not us. And in exchange, he grants those who come to him by faith his perfect record as if we are the righteous ones and not him. He provides what we could never gain on our own. And in doing so, he satisfies the longing soul deprived by sin and selfishness. Oh, friend, do you want to be part of that new exodus that I described earlier? Do you want deliverance from the guilt and power of your sin that dominates your life? Do you want release from the fear of death that haunts every human being? Come to Jesus and by faith eat of the bread of life. Rest fully in his atoning substitutionary sacrifice for your sins and his mighty resurrection over the grave. He paid your debt, friends, so that you might have his eternal life-providing benefit, a bread that will satisfy your soul forever. In verse 19 of Matthew 14, Matthew tells us that Jesus looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. I wonder if that sequence sounds familiar to you. Blessing. Giving. Eating. Eating. 
There's another place in Matthew's gospel where we see this same sequence during another meal. Friends, Matthew not only wants us to hear an echo of past redemptive history in this story, but to hear an echo of what is yet to come at this point. In Matthew 26, Jesus has gathered in the upper room with his disciples celebrating the last Passover, which he reorients as being fulfilled in his sacrifice for sins as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And listen to how Matthew frames it in chapter 26, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Friends, there is far more to the feeding of the 5,000 than meets the eye. In this story, we see Jesus as the fulfillment of Scripture, as the God of our salvation. And through it, we see a preview of the Last Supper, of the Lord's Supper, of the coming Messianic banquet prepared for all the people of God in which we will feast on the bread of life forever as our ever-replenishing satisfier of our souls, the one who always and forever provides for his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we see in this passage, the layers of glory that we see in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, we ask that we indeed might come to Christ Jesus and feast as our bread of life is the satisfaction of our souls. Father, help us to trust you, just to trust our Lord Jesus to provide what we need. We ask in his name. Amen.